You've attended council hearings in person. You've tuned into our televised proceedings on Channel 13. Now, you have the chance to listen to us on the radio as we demystify our work and the people who do it. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council with your host, Josh Gibson. Thank you, deep voice person with a funky backbeat. Indeed, this is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. You can't have a government without a council, so you can't have a government radio station without a council show. This is it. I'm Josh Gibson, Director of Communications for the D.C. Council. You may also know me as our voice on social media at Council of D.C. Uh, we're thrilled to be back with another Hearing the Council episode and to welcome back the uh, sophomore interview of one of our newer council members, uh, Ward 3's Matthew Fruman. So, Thank you very much, Josh. Great to be here. Great to see you. I, I, I'm always nervous for the second one because, you know, anyone will do the first one, but to come back yeah. for the second one, uh, that says something. Um, and once again, I have to compliment you on the uh, your art. You had a great painting last time and, and a different uh, great painting this time. You know, I don't I don't recall what we had last time. The, what you're seeing there is a bird's eye view of Jackson Reed, what was once Wilson High School. And uh, it's done by my wife, Lena. I think the other one was done by your wife was the boating, uh, boating scene. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's across from me right now. Yeah. <laughs> That's my kids in, uh, in a canoe, two of our three kids in a canoe. Uh, if you come up to our office and look around, you'll see a lot of Lena's art, a lot of other art as well, but um, very much has her stamp on it. Very, very, very cool. Uh, well, it's uh, and I, I did I saw you from afar uh, at the uh, Hacks and Flax event, uh, the going away uh, party for uh, Martin Ostermule from uh, DCS and WAMU. Uh, and what was intriguing about that to me was that Mary Che was there. So the question I was intrigued about was how is it to see to travel the world and see a predecessor. Excuse me. Bless you. Um, Bless you. You know, I saw... You you all, obviously, she retired. You you guys are on good terms. But that must just be so odd to see the person that preceded you and the person who followed you uh, in the same room. Yeah. You know, I did see Mary. I was in a conversation and I saw Mary over talking to somebody else 10, 15 feet away. And I thought, oh, wow, that's great. And I was going to go say hello. And then I don't believe she stayed for that long. I, I didn't. By the time I finished the conversation, I was in the middle of uh, I couldn't find her. But I'm I'm on great terms with Mary. Um, look to her for advice. I think it's great that she came out. Um, I'm sure she felt like she dealt with Martin for many years and wanted to show respect, which I think is fabulous and uh she in the process would see lots of people who she'd been working with we missed each other but see her sometime soon gotcha um well our topic you know our uh first interview was the traditional getting to know you biographical deep dive but now you're in the meat of things um and we're going to talk policy today and uh i think that for uh, the interview we're going to talk about uh, your ward three for all Mm -hmm. uh platform program policy um so why don't you uh give me the thumbnail on what inspired you to propose that and what it constitutes yeah so 
Um, well, thank you for that. Uh, <clears throat> the idea is um, Ward 3 has been seen as a place apart um, over the years. And I don't think of Ward 3 as a place apart, but I think sometimes it is seen that way by folks in other parts of the city. And I think that uh, it is very important that we be sending a message of welcome to uh, people of all backgrounds in Ward 3. I just happened to be sending on uh, some, some historic demographic data that's fascinating. And this is a thing that I worked on before I was on the council. I was very active on affordable housing issues with the Washington Interfaith Network. If you go back a hundred years and look at the demographics of the city, um, at the time, the city was was about two thirds white, one third black. Um, and the demographics change over time in lots of places in the city. And you see some parts of the city that were once entirely white become entirely black. And then as you get later into uh, closer to 2000, 2010, 2020, you see places that might have one day been white, then became black, and then are becoming gentrified and the demographics are changing again. But a thing that is striking when you look at those maps over time is every place in the city changes a lot, except Ward 3. Ward 3 is stably very heavily white. And then the question is, why is that? And why is Ward 3 not changing over time in anything like the ways that other parts of the city are. There, there's been some change, and I think there's reason to be encouraged that, that we're making progress. But a thing that I think is important is that we guarantee and send a message that Ward 3 is welcoming to people of all backgrounds, because I think we all benefit from being in a community that is diverse with lots of different perspectives and lots of different backgrounds. And that's a thing that over the years, Ward 3 has lacked and I think would be good to change. So that's where that message comes from. I, I wonder how much from a demographic, demographic standpoint, how much of the um, stability, demographic stability, uh, stability comes from literal stability you know tenure at current address i'm guessing is uh, a strength in ward three that that folks are there they get there they stay there um it's less transient i would think than the rest of the city um and i would think that would be part of why it's baked in but i don't know if you know anything about that but yeah i mean i think that that's an interesting observation but i'll tell you um a, a thing from my experience and this is you know clearly very delicate territory. So you, you know, one wants to be careful about the way in which one speaks about this, but I do think it is important to acknowledge and confront it. So I, I, I give you an example that when, when I was a young lawyer, uh, my wife and I set out to look for a place to live. We had our first child and we wanted to get out of an apartment. We needed to figure out where we would go. And so we looked all around and we went to and we found 
uh, first a house that we rented in Ward 3 and then a house that we eventually bought in Ward 3. And Ward 3 felt to us very familiar. It felt like the places where we had grown up. And so it felt like a comfortable fit for us. We didn't think about why that was, what shaped the places that we grew up, what shaped Ward 3. That was not part of our consciousness, honestly, 30 years ago when we were looking for a home. I had a close friend, my closest friend at the law firm that I was at was African-American, and I encouraged him to look in Ward 3, and he never did. And and it puzzled me at the time because I would say it, you know, he was looking, I was looking, and uh, I would suggest that he look, and I thought it would be fun. We'll live together. We'll live near each other. Be, it'll be great. But he never did. Then in around 2018, there was a story in the Washington Post magazine buying a house while Black. And it was a young couple that was looking for a place to live. And they looked in all different kinds of places and, and they found places that checked all the box, the boxes that I needed checked for me and that my colleague needed checked for him. Good schools, safe, you know, a, a, you know comfortable neighborhood, green spaces, parks. Um, but some of them, the, the what these writers said, there were very few, if any, people of color there, and they worried about how it would feel for them and for their children, perhaps most importantly, if there weren't people who looked like them around them. And so they chose a place that maybe didn't do as well on many of the metrics, but was more integrated than some of the places that checked all the blocks on their boxes on their metrics and a light went off over my head like of course that's why bill didn't look at word three because that he was seeing that i didn't see that at the time i didn't see that honestly until i read that article then after that in, I went on a jag of reading different kinds of histories, and one of the books that I read was The Color of Law, where I saw the forces that shaped the place I grew up, and Ward 3, the, the, the purposeful discrimination that shaped these places so that they, and that there's still something of a remnant of a sense of uh, unwelcome today based on that history. Now, that's changed in other places, things, but I think that that's part of the resistance in Ward 3 is that uh, if you're if you're an African-American who could afford to live there, would you want to live there in, before there are enough people who look like you? to make you and your children feel comfortable. So how do we get over that threshold where people feel comfortable? Right, and I mean, to your point about the history where there were literal covenants in a number of Ward 3 neighborhoods and elsewhere in the city that you couldn't sell to African-Americans and couldn't sell to, to uh, Jewish individuals. Well, I mean, that, that's absolutely true. And another thing that, you know, is part of 
Yeah, we're, we're all going through a kind of, well, I hope we're all going through a kind of an awakening and sensitivity about what this history means. And as we go through this awakening about what this history means, there's a pushback. It's, it's As night follows day, you, you get the accusations of woke, you get the accusations of political correctness, but it's our history. It is real and we need to confront our real history. And one day, a friend of mine sent me an email with the original deed on my house, on the house I raised my children in, and it had a covenant. Every house in my neighborhood had a covenant on it. The covenant on our house didn't prohibit selling to Jews, but I think it's just an oversight. You know, it, it had Armenians and this and that. Um, and so we're all shaped by that history, whether we know it or not. But you, the fact is, I was drawn to a house, felt comfortable in a house that in the end I learned was subject to a covenant, and that's part of what shaped my neighborhood. You got to accept that and think about, well, what does, that, what does that mean, and how do we change that? Because if we don't change it, those subterranean forces are going to keep things the same. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, there's uh, I'm I'm blanking on which commissioner it was one of the federal commissioners that ran the city for a century. Um, there was a pre-existing African-American neighborhood in Ward three. And that commissioner was um, the, the linchpin for not just keeping folks from moving in, but for moving out folks who were already there comfortable in a livable community where they felt at home um, and one of the federal commissioners ended that neighborhood so yeah i mean that's a that's a a very difficult history the, the person you're thinking of is melvin hazen i thought that's who it was but i didn't want to be wrong so and melvin hazen there was a a part of rock creek park that was named after melvin hazen and we just recently we the national park service just removed the name and now it's like parcel 630. It's no longer named after Melvin Hazen. The neighborhood you're thinking about is Reno City, um, and which is where Fort Reno is now. And the remnants of that neighborhood are below the ground. It's not the only place. It is a, a dramatic place where displacement occurred. Also, it's between Wilson High School and Deal Middle School. and was displaced in a sense to make room for those places, but certainly to make room for the upper middle class white folks who were moving in early in the 20th century. It's not an accident. There's the exclusion and there's the expulsion. Same thing happened around Lafayette Elementary School. The similar thing happened up by Friendship Heights on the Maryland side. There were some entrepreneurs, African-American entrepreneurs, who wanted to build a, a, a development that would be attractive to middle-class African-Americans. And they got started on it and then were fought by the community and ended up being blocked so it couldn't happen. None of it happened by accident. And if we're going to change it, that's not going to happen by accident either. It will only happen if we're making a conscious effort to address a, a, an unjust 
history. Uh, and so Ward 3 for All <laughs> is my little way of saying uh, I'm trying to uh, respond to that history. Um, but how do we move past the sort of Ward 3 that looks like America concept to the reality of a more diverse, inclusive Ward 3? So there's there's a bunch of different ways. I mean, one way is is just sending a message of welcome, just acknowledging it and sending a message of welcome. And we're making incremental progress. Um, but and the more sense of welcome that we convey, the more new folks will look at it and say, you know what? Maybe maybe that does work and would be an attractive thing. And then you get over the threshold because it's it's there's a threshold. And I don't walk in the shoes of of an African-American. I don't know how much how many people who look like me I would want to see around me in order to feel comfortable enough to say that could be home. I don't know the answer to that, but I don't think it's 100 percent. And I don't know exactly what it is, but I think we can move that way. A different thing is building more houses um, and attracting more people, which it, a different thing that you can see if you look at if you look around the city is where new housing is being built and where new affordable housing is being built, uh, including for for middle income people, 60, 80 percent AMI. And we don't have we, we have some new housing that's been coming on stream, but we lag other parts of the city in building new housing. So if we build new housing and including affordable housing that's accessible to teachers, firefighters, police, um, that can be a path to get there. And that's a thing that I pursue on, in, in every neighborhood, looking at what are the opportunities. Now, I, I'm I come from the a, from the ANC experience where I both want to add new housing and density, but I'm also very sensitive to the way in which it impacts neighbors. So it's not just a blank check of building new housing, but it's building housing that has appropriate transitions to the neighborhoods and things like that. But we need to we need to increase our housing stock in order to as a part of attracting new people. And and here's where I really get in trouble, Josh, <laughs> because there's a there's a imperative need to serve very very low income people, and we need to provide housing for the for the lowest income residents. But it isn't exclusive of the very low income people. But I also think that it is very important that we be attracting middle and upper middle class African Americans who can afford to live in the community um, as part of that, because I don't think you want a place where you have very high income white people and very low income people of color only. That doesn't create the social chemistry that I think you want to see. Doesn't mean you don't have low income people. So, and I'm very supportive of having uh, opportunities for low-income people. I just don't think that we sh that should be our exclusive goal in this space. Word three for all. That, that, that there, there is a challenge in the sense that in an, a less dense ward and in a ward with less diversity, income diversity, 
should board three shoulder a disproportionate impact if we do need to add density and if we do need to economically diversify the ward, should ward three carry uh, more than an eighth of the weight? Um, because it's, uh, I don't want to phrase it as a problem, but it's more than an eighth of the problem in terms right. of the pre-existing mix not being balanced. Yes. So, um, Manu War 3 does not carry a disproportionate burden, like I said, in terms of um, the the housing that's being built. It's it's probably less in Ward 3. That's picking up some. Uh, I, I think that Ward 3 should, should do its share in this space. And I think we have a little bit of a special obligation um, because of the history. There are people in, in Ward 3, lots of people in Ward 3 who, who are, don't like developers and they don't like density. They, it, it's not about race in their mind. It's about you know the quality of life of their community. And uh, I sometimes joke that there's lots of folks in Ward 3 who would be a hundred percent delighted to have an African American couple move in next door. Um, they don't care about the race of the person who parks their car in front of their house. They just don't want anybody to park their car in front of their house. And so, when folks like that feel like they're being told they're racist because they're opposing development it infuriates them and is not productive so and and it isn't because they're racist it it's because of the the nature of the neighborhood the scale of the neighborhood that they've become used to and want to maintain but that's a thing that needs to be navigated that for somebody like myself I want to press for more density that will enable us to play a bigger role. I don't know about a disproportionate role, but a bigger role in addressing the long-term things that are out there in the city. But also, in order to do that, you need to keep people on side and you need to be sensitive to not putting them too much in a corner and feeling accused. So it's a, it's tricky territory. and. You can see it at work. You know, there's a big debate about what's going to happen at the Chevy Chase Civic Core, where the library and the rec center is. And we need to get to a project that everybody can be proud of that has appropriate transitions to the neighborhood and contributes to addressing the issues that we've been talking about. But getting from here to there without having people too much at each other is uh, is a project. Thank you. We're way, way over time. But uh, thank you so, so much uh, for taking the time, for coming back for the software interview. We'll hold you to the coming back to the junior interview. But uh, it's a challenge because I can only do these interviews if you all come back. So they need to be fairly friendly. But I don't want them to just be sort of pablum and mindless. Tell me about your genius ideas. So I try to walk that balance and folks tend to come back. So I, I think you did it well. I did. I, I felt both that you were friendly, but also 
challenged, so that's good. You 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 walk that tightrope. I'll come back for sure. Phenomenal, phenomenal. Well, thank you again, very very much. And uh, let me just remind our listeners: uh, please remember to subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts. Search under Hearing the Council. Thanks again for joining us. Tune in next time. We're on DC Radio at ninety six point three FM on your HD four dial or at dcradio.gov. And uh, let me just remind you, I'm Josh Gibson. This is not a council hearing. This is Hearing the Council. Thank you so much again. Council member, I'll talk to you next time. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye.